Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. This week's episode is a little different. Instead of focusing on a murder or a missing person, we're looking at a tragedy, one of the worst tragedies in American aviation history when it happened. We are revisiting the horrific demise of Northwest Airlines Flight 255. Living in the Detroit area, our airport has been a hub as long as I can remember. When I was young, it was Northwest Airlines. Now it's Delta. You can quite literally get anywhere from here. Northwest Airlines started in the 1920s, founded by Lewis H. Britton. When the airline was in its infancy, they weren't transporting people. They were under contract with the U.S. Postal Service to, quite literally, move the mail. They flew mainly between Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Chicago, Illinois. After a year or two, there was a demand to transport people as well, and passenger service was added. Before 1930, Northwest was an international brand, offering flights from Minnesota to Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. At the end of World War II, Northwest branched out further, adding destinations in Asia. The name of the airlines was updated to reflect this change. Northwest Orient Airlines. Four decades after adding service to Asia, the company made additional changes. In 1986, Northwest Orient purchased a competitor, Republic Airlines, and operated out of three hubs, Minneapolis, Detroit, and Memphis, Tennessee. With the purchase of Republic Airlines, the fleet of planes shifted as well. Before the merger, Northwest mainly flew Boeings and DC-10s. Acquiring Republic gave them more than 100 DC-9s, a plane that the Northwest pilots were not as familiar with. Detroit Metro Airport... The setting for today's story is located in Romulus, Michigan. The airport is about 15 miles southwest of downtown Detroit and just off two major freeways, Interstate 94 and Interstate 275. In 1986, Metro Airport, as she's known by locals, was the 12th busiest airport in the United States, with approximately 15 million travelers rolling through her concourses that year. In the spring of 1987, Metro had a serious incident. A commuter plane missed the runway during landing, flipped over, and slid upside down into a series of support vehicles near the terminal. Nine people were killed, more than 20 people injured, as the plane came to rest less than 20 feet from the Davy Terminal, allowing horrified onlookers a clear view of two passengers, their clothing engulfed in flames, leaping from the wreckage onto the tarmac. Black smoke billowed into the sky. Rescue crews raced toward the wreckage, needing to save not just those on board, but people in support vehicles trapped by the fiery wreckage. 
The crash of Northwest Airlink Flight 2268 from Mansfield, Ohio to Detroit would dominate the news cycle, splashed across the front page of papers, and discussed in somber tones on evening newscasts. This was the worst crash in the history of Detroit Metro Airport. The plane was a small commuter prop, with only 17 people on board, 14 passengers and a crew of three. Nearly a dozen people, including multiple members of the ground crew, were rushed to local hospitals or airlifted to the specialized burn units in Ann Arbor for treatment. While the chaos, tragedy, and horror of this event is undeniable, we didn't know what a real tragedy looked like. Not yet. It would be just a few months before real horror and terror took hold at Metro. So come with me to a hot summer day in August 1987, when unsuspecting travelers board a plane destined to crash. Michigan in August is hot. It also tends to be muggy, which makes for some unpleasantly humid summer days. The heat is persistent, lingering overnight, never really cooling things down enough to relieve you. Not like in the desert. Not like in Phoenix, the destination of Flight 255. The plane is loaded with 149 passengers and six crew members, including flight attendants. And while I mention the weather, the unforgiving heat of an August day, it will not play a role in the fate of Flight 255. But before she can become Flight 255, she is Flight 750, making her way from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to tiny Tri-City International Airport in Saginaw, Michigan. The plane lands without incident, and here the flight number changes from 750 to 255. The crew remains on board. Flight 255 is a regular route, running between what is now MBS Airport in Saginaw and Santa Ana, California, with planned stops at Detroit Metropolitan Airport in Romulus and Sky Harbor International Airport in Phoenix, Arizona before landing, just before 11 p.m. at her final destination, John Wayne Airport in California. The flight from Tri-City Airport to Detroit Metro landed about 7.45 p.m. As the plane taxis to its gate, the pilot misses the gate, overshooting it and having to do a 180-degree turn to reach the gate so passengers can disembark. While the plane, a McDonnell Douglas MD-80, is parked at the gate, a mechanic entered the cockpit and checked the logbook, finding nothing unusual inside. The logbook did not foreshadow the events that unfolded in the next 90 minutes. Mechanics did look the plane over, as was routine, but they did not perform any maintenance on her. Ten minutes before Flight 255's departure for Phoenix, a maintenance worker spotted the captain, John Moss, walking around the exterior of the plane, performing a visual inspection. We are now going to break down the remaining minutes of Flight 255. Boarding began about 8 p.m., and by 8.25 on August 16, 1987, Flight 255 is loaded. 149 passengers, including four infants being held in laps, plus a crew of six. At 8.29, a voice in the cockpit says, Let's do the checklist. And at 8.32, you hear, Before checklist is complete. Followed by the voice of David Dobbs, the first officer, saying, Ignition, seatbelt sign, beacon. But the captain, he doesn't reply. So Dobbs answers himself, They're all on. And then you hear the captain say, On, on, on. At 8.32 p.m., Flight 255 pushes back from the gate at the Davie Terminal. At 8.33 p.m., the crew fires her engines. 
One minute later, ground control cleared Flight 255 to taxi to Runway 3 Center for takeoff and advised of a radio frequency change. The first officer, David Dobbs, repeated the taxi clearance, taxi to Runway 3 Center for takeoff, but he did not repeat the frequency change, nor did he adjust the radio to the proper frequency. Automatic Terminal Information Service, or ATIS, advised the crew that the temperature is 88 degrees, wind from the north-northwest at 17 knots, and low-level wind shears are in effect. At 8.34, the first officer says, Annunciator, and the captain replies, Checked. The Annunciator panel is also known as the Centralized Warning Panel. This is where any abnormal events or conditions are registered to warn the flight crew of problems with the plane. Upon reviewing audio from the cockpit, the captain did not ask for an after-start checklist. The first officer didn't ask the captain about the after-start checklist. The recording showed that neither the captain or the first officer said anything regarding completion of the after-start checklist or the taxi checklist. Remember how on the taxi in arriving from Saginaw, the plane missed the gate and had to turn around? On the taxi out, Flight 255 missed the turnout for runway 3C, and Control gave them a new taxi route for the runway. I want to mention here that this flight crew is familiar with Detroit Metro Airport. This is a regular route, and Detroit is a hub for Northwest. Them missing the gate and then missing the runway raises red flags for me. As the pilot and first officer repositioned to access the runway, Addis reminded them again of the temperature, wind, and wind shears in effect. At 8.44 and 4 seconds, Flight 255 is cleared for takeoff. Listeners, this is where time slows to a crawl, because every second matters, especially when the time that you have left to live can be measured in seconds, not minutes. At 8.44 and 21 seconds, the crew could not engage throttle. 17 seconds later, the throttle engaged. 8.44 and 45 seconds, first officer called rotate. This means they're pulling back on the yoke to lift the nose of the plane and leave the ground. At 8.45 and 5 seconds, the stall warning sounds in the cockpit. The stick shaker activated, advising the crew that something is seriously wrong. They have less than 10 seconds to determine the problem, correct it, and keep the plane in the air. What you don't hear is a warning to the captain and first officer that the plane isn't configured for takeoff. If you listen, you can hear the oral tones, stall, warning the crew that the plane is in jeopardy. You don't hear a warning that the flaps... are the problem. Witnesses on the ground agree that Flight 255's takeoff roll was longer than normal, and that when she finally lifted, the tail of the plane nearly hit the runway, meaning she was straining to get airborne. Once 255 became airborne, she started to roll left and then right. Witnesses estimated the angles of the rolls at 15 to 90 degrees, and she's not getting altitude like she should. A 15-degree angle isn't bad, but 90 degrees? The plane is practically sideways while not getting enough height. Flight 255 is perilously close to the ground, even though she's more than a 1,000 feet past the runway. 
During one of these 90-degree rolls, the left wing of the plane dips and connects with a light pole at the Avis rental car lot. This lot is two-thirds of a mile from the end of the runway. The top of the pole is 42 feet from the ground, but crash investigators will determine that Flight 255 hit the pole at 38 feet, shearing off the top four feet of the pole. At this point, Flight 255 is losing its wing, and the plane is at a 90-degree angle. Fuel is pouring from the damaged wing. Crash is imminent, and 255 hits the roof of the rental car building and the plane, the MD-80 with 149 passengers and six crew on board, begins a terrifying cartwheel before slamming into a railroad bridge. The fuselage is ripped apart on impact. A witness is quoted as saying, when it hit the ground, it crumbled like paper. According to witnesses on the ground, the plane couldn't get altitude, and the pilot corrected, trying to turn around to get back to her runway when the edge of the wing clipped the lamppost near the rental car building. And this is where the nightmare begins, because the MD-80 tumbles through the air, coming apart across the top of Interstate 94, which runs just north of the airport. She is spewing fuel and metal and the noise. The sound of the plane being ripped apart is deafening. There's a resounding boom and parts of the plane, blazing with fire, are sprayed across the grounds of the airport across the freeway, across neat rows of rental cars, and across Middle Belt Road. It's like hell itself opened up and engulfed part of Romulus. While the fuselage stops at the point of impact, the plane's engines keep going, hurtling past the wreckage, spewing fuel and oil for literally thousands of feet. The first engine was found 2,300 feet from the fuselage. The second engine was 3,000 feet, nearly a mile away from the point of impact. The crash path goes over a railroad bridge and across not one, but two freeway overpasses. Witnesses said everything was on fire. Everywhere you looked, fire. As rescue crews rushed to the scene, it was hard to know where to begin. The debris field, the flames, the luggage and bits of plane, the bits of people. It's everywhere. Trays of food are everywhere. Because back in the 80s, passengers on an evening flight would expect to be served dinner once the plane was at altitude. The sun had set just minutes before Flight 255 departed, and the night sky is orange with fire. Middle Belt Road, which runs along the eastern border of the airport, was impassable. So much debris was strewn across both lanes. First responders armed with yard after yard of bright yellow plastic began recovering remains within hours of the crash. The Wayne County Mutual Aid Agreement is in place, and first responders from 40 communities in Metro Detroit descend on the area to assist in recovery. Wayne County Executive Ed McNamara, who would later have a terminal at the airport named after him, told assembled reporters that, quote, it looks like a bomb went off on Middle Belt. He told them that the plane departed runway three, center, northbound, and the plane crashed in the area of Middle Belt and Wick Roads. The smell of burning fuel, burning metal, and burning flesh is overwhelming. Calls are put out to police and fire agencies across Wayne County. If ever there was an all-hands-on-deck situation, this is it. Recovery teams work through the night. In addition to the passengers and crew who died in the accident, two motorists were killed by debris, with many others injured. 
recovery agents are scouring the scene for the black box, which, despite its name, is actually a vibrant orange color to make it easier to find. They want that flight recorder. The FAA, that's Federal Aviation Administration, and local investigators, including the FBI, they want to know what brought down Flight 255. They need to rule out terrorism or a targeted attack. Metro Airport is shut down, stranding thousands of travelers. No one is coming into or out of Metro until investigators know that it's safe. During recovery efforts, police, firefighters, and emergency medical technicians are dressed in protective gear, causing them to swelter in the heat from the August night and residual heat from the burning plane and fires left in its wake. They're dressed for their own safety as the crash site is a dangerous place to be. They're busy combing through the wreckage when they make a startling discovery. It appears that not everyone on the flight was killed. Despite overwhelming odds, they found a survivor. But first, let's hear from our sponsor. When Flight 255 crashed in August of 1987, it was the second deadliest crash in American aviation history. As August 16th becomes the 17th, recovery efforts continue. They're still looking for the plane's black box looking for survivors, and keeping themselves safe as they pick through jagged pieces of twisted metal, much of it still dangerously hot after the explosion hours earlier. There are other perils as well, including looters. Police arrested several people on suspicion of looting, particularly after a young man was spotted leaving a wooded area near the crash site carrying a bag of golf clubs. Recovery teams make a remarkable find, a survivor. Not everyone on the ill-fated flight was killed. A four-year-old girl, burned and injured, was found, still strapped into her seat. Cecilia Chichen would become known as America's orphan. Her mother, father, and six-year-old brother, David, were all killed in the crash. Cecilia's progress would be tracked by people across the region and the country, calling her a miracle. Now married with a family of her own, Cecilia is known as Cecilia Crocker, and she has no memory of the crash that killed her family, but she still has scars, including marks on her arms, legs, and forehead from the accident. On her wrist, as an ever-present reminder of her past, is a tattoo, the black silhouette of an airplane. Crocker told ABC News, quote, So many things. Scars were put on my body against my will, and I decided to put this on my body for myself. Cecilia would be the lone survivor of the tragedy and a bright spot for the community, both in Detroit and in her hometown of Tempe, Arizona. Something positive to focus on as funerals and memorial services are planned. The passengers of Flight 255 were a mix of crew traveling to their next assignment, families vacationing or returning home after vacation, and businessmen and women traveling for work. Passengers included the Bilek family, parents Donald and Susan, as well as their sons, 16-year-old Michael and 13-year-old Brad. They'd been in Michigan visiting family near Lansing. Charles and Karen Englert, the married couple, along with toddler son Charles Jr., were returning home to Arizona after seeing family in Michigan. Robert Geiger was traveling with his two girls, 13-year-old Emily and 7-year-old Elizabeth. They'd been in Ohio visiting family. 45-year-old Louis Dresch was headed to Arizona. He was going to the General Motors Proving Grounds to pick up a vehicle for testing in Texas. 23-year-old Army Lieutenant Christine Hoffman was returning to Fort Bliss after visiting her parents in Ohio. 
16-year-old Hitty Ratcliffe of Santa Ana, California, was headed home after spending part of the summer with her father near Toledo. 23-year-old Bruce Elfering of St. Rosa, Minnesota, was a flight attendant working Flight 255. Larry and Laura Thorell of Glendale, Arizona, were in Michigan with their infant daughter, Krista. They were attending a retirement party for Laura's father. And these are just a few of the people lost in the crash of Flight 255. On August 20th, 1987, the Detroit Free Press has a blaring headline, Pilots May Not Have Set Flaps. And while it will take months for the National Transportation Safety Board to confirm the findings, what the Free Press reported that day appears to be exactly what happened. Investigators analyzed the condition of the plane. They listened to the voice recorders. According to investigators, the cockpit crew failed to set the wing flaps to the appropriate setting for takeoff. They further did not follow basic pre-takeoff checklists to prepare the plane. A Washington Post story from August 1987 quotes an unnamed pilot from an unnamed airline who said, quote, Each phase of the flight has its own list. There is a checkoff list when the crew first comes on, a pre-takeoff and after-takeoff list, a taxi-takeoff list. Listeners, in my opinion, this is the most frustrating part, how avoidable it was. The checklists exist as a failsafe against human error, but they weren't used. The plane was not configured in a way that would allow her to fly, and this tragedy is the result. When they start the investigation into the crash, they first look at the crew of the flight. Captain John Moss was 57 years old with more than 30 years of flying experience. Pierce described him as a capable, by-the-book pilot. First Officer David Dobbs is 35 years old with seven years of experience. He's described as competent, personable, and easy to work with. While the two men had plenty of experience with flying, they'd only worked together for a week or so. At the time of the crash, they'd flown 18 trip legs together. When the bodies of the captain and first officer are autopsied, the cause of death is listed as blunt force trauma. No medications, alcohol, or intoxicants are in their systems. The Wayne County Medical Examiner declined to autopsy the passengers and remaining crew because the cause of their injuries was obvious and caused instant death. Cecilia, the lone survivor, has third-degree burns on her arms and legs. Her skull is fractured, and she has multiple broken bones. The Aviation Safety Board labeled Flight 255 as a, quote, non-survivable accident, and their report stops just shy of calling Cecilia's survival miraculous. The pilot who flew this particular plane into Minneapolis before the crew of Moss and Dobbs picked it up would tell investigators that he checked the takeoff warning system for his flight and it was functional. Listening to the cockpit flight recorder, investigators are wondering why that warning wasn't issued. The only thing they heard was the stall warning, which we listened to earlier. They also heard the crew discussing concerns about getting into John Wayne Airport in Santa Ana, California before 11 p.m. If they arrived late, they would be turned away because of noise ordinances impacting use of the airport. A first officer who flew from Minneapolis to Saginaw in the cockpit jump seat with Moz and Dobbs said that he heard the system announce flaps, flaps, when the captain made a turn on the runway. The first officer did not recall hearing warning tones, just the vocal warning. On September 1, 1987, just two weeks after the crash, McDonnell Douglas, the company who built ill-fated Flight 255, 
issued a telex. The telex recommended that the takeoff warning system be manually checked before takeoff on each flight. On September 23rd, the FAA created a special team to review the takeoff warning system in all commercial passenger aircraft, as well as working with maintenance and flight crew personnel to check the systems. While the weather the night of the crash was very hot, temperatures were approaching 90 degrees and it was almost 9 p.m., and there was a high-pressure area within five miles of the airport. However, the weather in Detroit does not appear to be a factor in the crash. Following the crash, there would be lawsuits and more lawsuits that would drag out over the next decade. The National Transportation Safety Board found that the probable cause of the accident was the flight crew's failure to use the taxi checklist to be certain the plane was configured for takeoff. Contributing to the accident was the absence of electrical power to the airplane takeoff warning system. The airplane takeoff warning system did not alert the flight crew that the plane was not configured for takeoff. They could not determine a reason for the absence of electrical power. The amount of time the plane was flyable was 14 seconds, likely not enough time for the crew to realize the flaps were in the wrong position and correct them as the plane rolled and did not attain proper altitude. In memory of the victims, a black granite memorial was erected in 1994. It stands along with a row of spruce trees at the top of the hill at Middle Belt Road and I-94, the site of the crash. On August 15, 2017, a 30th anniversary memorial was held for the families of those affected by the crash. A vigil was held at 5.46 p.m. in Phoenix and at 8.46 p.m. in Romulus, the precise time of the crash. While Detroit Metro Airport has yet to see an air disaster of the magnitude of Flight 255 in August of 1987, there was another incident at Metro Airport on December 3, 1990, when a DC-9 mistakenly taxied onto an active runway and collided with a Boeing 727. Eight of the 54 passengers aboard the DC-9 are killed. The crew and passengers on the 727 were not seriously injured. At the time of the crash, the airport was dealing with dense fog and limited visibility. 255. That flight number was retired by Northwest Airlines after this incident, and the company that purchased Northwest, Delta, declines to use that flight number as well. We are all hopeful that there will never be another flight 255 or one like her. Already Gone is a bi-weekly true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. You can check us out on Twitter or join the Already Gone podcast discussion group on Facebook. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for cases to cover, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Your reviews help other listeners find the show and the cases discussed here. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.
goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.